4 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 4, right after the service, there is going to be a, uh, just kind of a congratulations outside. There's some, I think there are some uh, uh, refreshments out there, and there are tables for you to look at, some photos or whatnot, and uh, to put any congratulation cards or uh, anything like that that you'd like to send them off with. And uh, so I would encourage you to at least go back out there. Yes. Oh. Okay, if you don't have an outline this morning, raise your hand and, and Brother Bob will come right over to you. Okay, there's your shot, Brother Bob. So if you need an outline, just keep raising your hands. First Samuel chapter 4. Uh, so there's a, uh, that little small reception will be right after church out there. And I think there's some cake and some lemonade and things for you. And uh, just be a good time of pre-fellowship. Don't forget tomorrow's our Memorial Day picnic if you'd like to be a part of it right here on the campus at 1130. And then also, if you'd like to be a part of the Vacation Bible School, uh, there are... There are volunteer registration forms that are out there on the table in the center of the foyer. If you'd like to help in a specific way, uh, you can just fill that out. Lisa, you still have yours, right? Okay, so fill it out. Hold on to it. Give it to my wife right after the service, and we'll register you and put you uh, where we can use you and uh, ask the Lord to use you for Vacation Bible School. That'll be the end of July. It'll only be Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. It's only for an hour and a half. So we're doing a condensed version of what we normally do because we really don't know what we've got yet. And so we're going to do Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and I think the times will be on there. I think you can register for that actually on our website. So if you'd like to be a part of that, let us know. All right. Let's transition here and go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And um, I'm going to read this as a, a verse... A, a verse heavy chapter, but uh, it's really kind of necessary to preach this message and uh, and to get everything that I believe that we can get out of this message. And uh, it, it's it's twofold, as I said earlier. One is any Bible message is for every single individual. And you understand that it's a Bible truth. And so we can all get something from it. But I think if you'll just listen to it today from the standpoint of if you were 18 years old, and you were getting ready to start over. Now, many of us have enough mistakes in our life where we would say, man, I wish God would just let us start all over again. And press rewind and go back with the knowledge that we have now. Okay, that would be amazing. Okay, and I, and I think in our minds, we think we would forego any of the mistakes that we made. Uh, and yet God wants us to learn from those mistakes and then hand down a better way to those coming behind us. Everybody follow? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to preach this message with all of us in mind, but I also want to make sure that Jake and Trenton know uh, that from the Word of God, this is something that they need to know. It's only two points, okay? Now, the problem is each point has 35 subpoints, but I trust that you'll listen. Not that many. I think there's four or five each. Some of them will be quicker than others. And to be honest, once I read the passage of Scripture... And I'll explain the next two chapters without reading them in portions there. I think that you'll understand very clearly the two points that I'm going to make. All right. The two points are these. All right. First of all, I'm going to give them the hard truth about sin. All right. And I'm going to do so because there are not a lot of people preaching about sin today. And I'm going to reveal the hard truth because Satan does not want anybody to know the full truth about sin. The second point I'm going to give them is some wonderful truths or helps about God. 
okay? That's the second point. Now, underneath those, I'm going to make some clarifications just so that we can make sure how this passage of Scripture takes on the life of those two points. And I think that pretty much everybody will get it, all right? So let's, let's read the Word of God here if you allow me. Remember, we're talking about Samuel here and his growing up now. Many people believe that he's somewhere in the realms of between 12 and 15 years old, so you could qualify him as a teenager. And yet all of Israel knows that this man is the prophet of God. Think about that testimony just for a minute. Think about the burden of responsibility in the time of the judges when every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. You're 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 year old standing up and having the ear and the voice of God. That's a pretty big thing. But that's what Samuel is. The Bible says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So in the first two verses, people have already died. Verse 3. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, you need to underline that phrase, it may save us. You need to underline that phrase as well. It may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, we're already familiar with these jokers, right? The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. Now, isn't it interesting that they knew who was in the camp, but Israel didn't. They said it. And yet the enemies of God knew that it wasn't an it, that it was God Almighty. Does everybody get this? This is the condition of supposedly the people of God. Well, the Bible says, the middle of verse 7, And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods, these are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O you Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. The Philistines fought and Israel was smitten and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great, here they're dying again, slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Remember who prophesied that? Samuel did. And there ran a man, a Benjamin, out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and and with earth upon his head. And when he came to lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, what meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was 90 and 8 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. 
And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army and fled today out of the army. And he said, what, what is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there have been also a great slaughter among the people, and thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. Notice verse 18, and it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. That's some pretty terrible news. Notice what happens in verse 19 uh, once the news is coming forth. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed for her pains came upon her. She started having child labor. The Bible says in verse 20, and about the time of her death, the women that stood by said unto her, fear not, for thou hast born a son. Now get it. She's dying in childbirth. All right. By the way, every time my wife had a child and the child was okay and she was okay, to me, it was a miracle of God. It was a miracle because there are a lot of people that don't have that blessing. She was dying. So the Bible says, but she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod saying the glory is departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband dead. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. And as I do my best to try to preach about it today and preach your word, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and use me. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding as your people. And Lord, I pray that you touch the hearts of every believer here. God, especially Trent and Jake. I pray that you'd help them. I pray, God, that you would use the light and the lamp of the word of God to show us not only what the truth is, but, Lord, I pray that we'd never be deceived by Satan, but we would hold the truth forth, as the Bible says in Philippians. And, God, in this crooked and perverse nation, that we would walk straight paths before you. Please bless your word in our hearts richly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The period of the judges recorded in Scripture to teach us just how bad it can be when people turn their back on God. We've talked about it for several weeks. Truth becomes, at that point, when you turn your back on God, truth becomes relative to a situation or to a person. The very people who have the presence of God before them and His Word in their hearts had failed of the grace of God and ran headlong into a a tragic cycle of sin that would last more than 300 years. Now think about that just for a minute. Israel was a blessed people. The Bible declares that in Deuteronomy, that there's never been a nation that has God so near and has had so much given to them by the grace of God, and yet they turned their back on God. Not that they just turned their back on God. They generationally did it. It was it was years, I'm talking 40 and 80 years at a clip before somebody would get a hold of God and God would bring them back in, by the way, and have mercy and have forgiveness. And then they would do it all over again. It's tragic. There are three tragedies about the history of Israel as God's people. They were warned by God what would happen if they turned away from him. And yet they did. Uh, they went their own way anyway, and they repeated it over and over again. In fact, 
500 years after the period of the judges, God was still warning them. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 19, thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Now know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that, thou might, that, that, uh, and that my fear is not in thee. That's a tremendous statement of God on the spiritual condition of people who, could we say it this way, should know better. My dad was forever saying that you should know better than to, and fill in the blank. You should know better because we've taught you better. You know what I'm saying? You should know better. And God is continually rebuking Israel from this, for, this, for this tragic, tragic cycle. Well, in chapters 4 through 6, God tells us a sad story about the consequences of sin and his glory being removed from the people. Remember, the Ichabod means that the glory of God is departed. As a preacher, you prepare every message with the hopes that people will take it to heart. Everyone. That, that by faith, someone would surrender their life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ in order to make a difference in their portion of the world. You prepare and you pray and you hope that somebody would be saved from their sin by the grace of God. Every time you preach. A preacher lives to see God move in the midst of his people. That's what a preacher lives for. Every time he stands in the pulpit, he is the consummate optimist about the church having revival. And people seeing others saved. And such was Samuel. Unfortunately, people would be at least another, get it, another 20 years after chapter 4 before they would finally listen to his preaching and turn their heart to God. What a waste of time. Would you agree? This message is for everybody, but there are, three, uh, there are two young men about to set out on their own for the first time as a Christian in a post-Christian and anti-Christian culture. And as one of the last sermons they may hear in the next few months, I'd like to try to help them. They haven't, listen, they haven't repeated history yet. They haven't gone through a cycle of loving God and ignoring God and making right decisions and turning their back. You know what I'm saying? They haven't had that luxury yet. They haven't gone through the ups and downs of the Christian life. To my knowledge, None of them are Christian skeptics yet. None of them are doubters or scorners about the church or the faith. Not that I know of. They haven't experienced the hardship of the workplace or the temptations through the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes or the pride of life full face. But they will. And they will very soon. And I want to try to help them. So this morning, I want, to, I want us to pretend that all of us that today... Uh, is the day after graduation that's all behind us now we've been made to go to school 13 years and it's done you get to take that burden off right we, we now we're all about ready to step out of these doors into a cancel culture woke environment that's where we're going and one one thing that uh, and, and one thing that you want to understand about the culture is that at every turn, Satan is going to come at us because this is the first day of the rest of our life. Right. Satan's going to come at us hard and he's going to come at us long enough so that God's glory, listen, will soon be removed from our lives. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works, get it and glorify God in your body, which is his. What know you not that your body is not your own? 
that your, your life is not your own, that you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The fact of the matter is every attack of Satan is to try to get that glory gone. The honor of God leaving our lives. That's his goal. That's the goal of Satan for, uh, for every believer is to get the glory gone. I want to make two points this morning from this passage. What, what, what is it that is actually gone? When the glory is gone, what are we supposed to learn from that? What does God want us to know? Well, first of all, I told you, number one, it's the hard truth about sin. As you read these chapters four through six, what you see is the sum total of sin in the lives of people like you and I. And the truth about their sin was being hidden from the liar, Satan. They couldn't see beyond their decisions. And this morning, I want to remind all of us what sin does in our lives. By the way, in case you don't know it, sin is anything in opposition to God. Anything in opposition to God. It is anything in opposition to his will, anything in opposition to his word. If you are going to live outside of the will of God and against the word of God, the Bible says that is transgression of the law. That is sin. Anything that is not by faith in the assurance that what you're doing is God-given is sin according to the Bible. Now, here are the hard truths about sin. First of all, sin makes us arrogant. It makes us arrogant. Hebrews chapter 3 says, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, the word is harden not your hearts. That word is the same word that you get in the Old Testament, stiff-necked. We would say prideful, right? Sin makes us arrogant. We see these people living without God in their daily lives. Samuel comes into the, into the, the picture, and when the enemy comes against them, remember the Philistines arrayed themselves in battle, they didn't need God then either. They didn't need God in their daily life. Every man was doing that, which was right in his own eyes. And when they went to battle, they didn't need God to fight their battles. They thought that they would be just fine fighting their own battle. We could say it this way. They thought it would be just fine living their lives, whether it was in a difficult situation or not. Sound familiar? Sin makes us arrogant. We don't need God. And if we can get out of the battle or figure out the battle or figure out a way to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we don't need God. Well, they figured out something else real quick. There was a great slaughter. These people decided they didn't need God in the battle. Living in sin emboldens and hardens our hearts. We get lifted up in pride and can even convince ourselves that we're getting away with it. That's where these people were. The Bible tells us specifically sin makes us arrogant. Secondly, sin creates confusion creates confusion. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 7. O Lord, Daniel prayed, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us, listen, confusion of faces as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are afar off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespasses that they have trespassed against thee. You see, you'll recall that our text reveals that the ark became an idol relic it says we need to go get it and bring it into the camp and it will deliver us you see what i mean it became a trinket it became the virgin mary statue it became the saint jude it became the saint thomas the saint peter whatever you want to try it, uh, call it it became an idol relic and so now all of a sudden instead of worshiping the god that delivered them they're depending on an idol they're depending. I remember growing up, uh, some of my friends had lucky rabbit's foot. You remember those? They were like dyed colored. 
I like to, I'm a feel guy and I like things that are soft. And so I'd always ask uh, uh, my friend, Peter, I said, Peter, let me see your, let me see your rabbit foot. And he kept it in his pocket all the time. And I just said, I just go, this is so cool. I want to get one of these. Well, my parents never let me get one because we didn't believe in luck, but I loved to rub it. And I loved the feeling of it. You know, when you're superstitious, you can get akin to a lot of things. The Zodiac, the eight ball, whether it's a rabbit foot, doesn't matter. That's where Israel's heart were, was. They were confused because they had lived without God so long, they just made it another piece of furniture. They were superstitious. Israel had become superstitious. They thought they could take it out to war against the enemy and the ark was going to deliver them. So it had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with the ark. It was the ark. People living in sin can think all they have to do is just get back to church. Well, if I just go back to church, my kids will be right. If I just go back to church, my marriage will be right. If I just go back to church and it becomes a relic. I saw a great bumper sticker the other day. It said, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I love that. I love it so much. Because it's not about the place. My life is not about a place. It's about a person. Israel forgot that. My marriage will be saved if I just sit in church together. My kid will come back around if I just get them in a Sunday school class or if they could just go to camp. And none of it has to do with God. See, sin, sin just creates confusion. Thirdly, sin forms irreverence. Irreverence. Time spent out of God's word, out of the house of God, away from the man of God and the people of God will cause a person to live outside of the will of God. And eventually will convince them Listen, that it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal to have this happen. We'll get through it. The kids are resilient. Uh, People will get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Well, the irreverence that comes from that type of spirit and attitude is overwhelming in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says in Exodus 32, after Moses was gone up on the side of a mountain and out of the midst of the people... And the people were, shall we say, left alone to their own thoughts. The Bible says that they went to Aaron and said, make us an idol. We're missing something. The man of God's not here. Make us an idol so we can worship it. And Aaron, being the dork that he was, said, okay, give me all your gold. The Bible says that he beat out a golden calf and he said, behold Thy gods, O Israel. Well, the Bible tells us about that whole attitude right in there. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, not to God. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, I'm not going to go into it, but I can't explain in mixed company what that phrase rose up to play means. It was awful. If I used a term, I could say something like burning man. That's how awful it was. What happened? Sin brought them not just through confusion. It brought them to irreverence. They made the decision. Not only am I going to live in sin. Not only am I going to turn my back on God. I'm going to be irreverent about my relationship with God. The ark as a relic or an idol was, of course, taken by the Philistines, the Bible says. And by God's judgment in chapters 5 and 6, God cursed them and sent it back by way of a cart on oxen. You may know the story. In fact, the Philistines said, look, if it takes this path, 
Well, no, it was just by chance, Bible words, that it, that it just happened to come to us and, and, and that all this happened because God smote them and gave them a, a, a physical curse. But if it goes by the way of Beth Shemesh, we'll know that it was of God. Well, guess what? The cart by the oxen went by Beth Shemesh. Why? Because God wanted them to know that it was him. So the cart goes and it lands in the field of one whose name is Joseph. And 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us what happened next. Go there if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19. Now here's the ark. In fact, the Bible says the story goes that as the ark came in to that area of Beth Shemesh, that uh, there was a great stone. By the way, I've been to that stone. It's amazing just thinking about the ark coming by in Israel and the field that's there. It's, it's very uh, fruitful and, and you can see that it's just a place where people would settle. And the Bible says when the people lifted up their eyes that they rejoiced. Yes, the ark is back. All right. Now, here's the problem. Irreverence doesn't show itself all the time, but when it has an opportunity, it never fails to do so. So the cart comes in and notice what happens to it. In first Samuel chapter six and verse 19, by the way, it will tell you, uh, well, in verse 19, the Bible says, and he that is God smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people, hear people dying again, 50,000 and threescore and ten. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Isn't that amazing? So, so you're telling me just because people looked inside? Yes, because people looked inside. Why was that a big deal? Because you're not supposed to look inside the ark of God. God put a pot of manna in there, a tablet with the law, and Aaron's budding rod. And by faith, you know that it's there. And we don't have to live by sight as a Christian. But they didn't see it as the ark of God. They, th- they thought it was just it. And so they thought, wow, here's this chest. Let's see what's inside. We've never actually seen the ark. Well, that was also re- reserved for a high priest. But even he knew you weren't supposed to look inside. So they opened the ark of God, and God killed over 50,000 people. Wow. See, what does that teach you? God hates sin. That's the hard truth. He hates it. And it always costs. To these people, instead of being the mercy seat of a holy God, it was a chest, and they wanted to see what was inside of it. The person it represented was no longer as important to them as what was possibly inside of it which led to more sin. Irreverence always leads to more sin. Just read Romans chapter 1 sometime. Who, when they knew God, glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man or or birds or four-footed beasts or creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what happens when you become irreverent to the things of a holy God is that it leads to more. You see how tragic the cycle is? But wait, there's more. Letter D, sin turns God's face away from us. The Bible says that 
Phineas's wife said the glory of God has departed and she marked it just as Hannah marked Samuel to remember the grace and the miracle of birth and, and God's blessing. Then, then Phineas's wife turns around and she wasn't lamenting necessarily the death of her father-in-law or her husband as much as she was concerned about God's glory being departed. That's amazing to me. By the way, that still means that good women can make bad decisions and marry bad men. Because Phineas, the Bible says, knew not the Lord. Obviously, his wife did. And she was more concerned about reverencing God than her own dead husband was. The Bible says that God turned his face. Why? Because of sin. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you, uh, separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now, you need to understand, there are people living today, living in sin, that don't care that God's face is no longer toward them. You understand? They don't care. They don't care that the glory's gone. They are living the way they want to live in spite of God's glory. And they are bent on their own way. Numbers chapter 14. Go not up. Moses looked at these, these people's parents and grandparents, great-grandparents. Look, don't go into this battle. God's already decided. You guys have wanted, you don't want any part of God's will. If you go up, God is not going with you. Go not up. God, the Lord's not among you. That you be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you're turned away from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will not be with thee. And guess what they did? We preached about it. They went up anyway. And what happened? They were smitten. They had said at that minute, oh, wait, we've sinned, but we want to do God's will now. We want the promises of God. And so they went into battle and they died. It's amazing how many times from Genesis 5 all the way to the end of the Bible, how many people are not just going against God's will, but are ignorant of what happens when you live in sin. You die. It's amazing. So letter E, here's the last point of it. Sin always destroys. It destroys. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You talk about a promise of God. Listen, you cannot sin and have everything in your life stay alive. Something is going to die. Something is going to happen. When I decide to ignore the fact that Ezekiel 18, 20 says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. When I decide to live against those promises, then it's going to come. What? Destruction of some sort. Nothing alive can live in the presence of sin according to God's word. Now, you can not believe that or not, but that's what the Bible says. Lot thought he could get away with it. Lot thought he could get away with it. Lot thought, though he knew the law, what was right, he thought he could move into Sodom and Gomorrah, that God said, oh, I'm going I'm to destroy them because their wickedness is, their imaginations are evil, and, and, and I'm going to destroy the city. Lot said, well, you know, but I can make some money there. 
it's well watered. I, 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 that's a good place for me and my cattle. You know, Uncle Abraham and I had to part because there's not enough place for us up there, but there's room here and I'll just raise my family here. And as long as we make money, that'll be the big thing. It's just not really necessarily about, you know, we can live in an ungodly society and I, I don't need the company of Abraham. I, I can do this on my own. Well, he moves in and thought he could get away with it, but he didn't. His relationship with his family was destroyed. He spoke to them as one that mocked when he said, look, we got to get out of here. God's going to destroy. He's not pleased with the city. And they're like, we've never heard him talk like this before. His relationship with his wife was destroyed. In fact, she died because Lot didn't have the spiritual fortuity to do what was right before they moved to Sodom and Gomorrah. Samson thought he could get away with it. Hophni and Phineas thought they could get away with it. Goodness sake, Eli thought he could get away with it. King Saul thought he could get away with it. Even David, King David, thought he could get away with it. You know, it's interesting to me. We talk about the ignorance of people repeating history, how ignorant we really are. Because we think we can get away with it. Something always dies. It destroys, sin destroys our joy. Our joy dies. David cried, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may, uh, that, uh, may rejoice. He prayed again, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Why? Because sin killed it. Sin destroys our joy. It destroys our love and concern for other people. Destroys our relationships with people that we need in our life to stay encouraged and keep going for the Lord. Sin destroys our view of God, our view of holy things and our recognition of what's most important in life. That at every turn becomes harder than it should be. By the way, the way of the transgressor is hard. That's the Bible. Now I want you to write down a statement because of that. Life, especially you two, I want you to write this statement down. Life is hard enough without trying to live in sin. Dude, being a Christian, being a married Christian, being a married parent is hard enough. Without having to add the way of a transgressor being hard. Making foolish decisions because I'm irreverent toward a holy God. That's awful. Man, it's hard enough just to live life and pay taxes in this world. Much less I got to do it outside of the will of God. You see, what I want to try to get into your mind, Trent and Jake, is the hard truth about sin. Because for the rest of your life, the devil will do his best to keep that truth from you. But it's okay. It's just a little sin. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little truth that you're withholding from your spouse. It's just a little thing that you're doing. I read this morning, it's the little foxes that spoil, spoil the tender vines. Satan won't tell you the hard truth about sin, but God will. As a warning. He said it before they even went, look, it's a blessing if you serve and obey God, but it's a curse if you don't. The hard truth. But here's another thing Satan won't tell you the helpful truths about God. Because even though these people were so turned and fortified in their own way, I'm doing this. I don't care what it takes. I'm doing this. God said, okay, well, unfortunately, the consequences that you put in motion, I'm not going to override. But I still love you. And I'm still going to have mercy on you. And I still want you back. And I want my face to be turned toward you.
That's the truth that Satan doesn't want anybody to know. That's the truth that Satan doesn't want any Christian who decides to live their own life. He wants to make them make sure that they do not remember the truth about God. Remember that. At this point, I want to stop for a moment and thank God for who he is. And I want to thank and praise God for his shed blood and for his patience with me and his long suffering. I want to thank God for his mercy and his truth. And I want to praise him for his excellent greatness and his mighty acts. I want to praise him for the wonder and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind every person under the sound of my voice that God never changes, that his standard for blessing never changes. And whenever someone turns away from God, they always have an opportunity to turn back to God. There's a tremendous story in the Bible. You may want to find it. Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son that says, look, I've taken all that I have coming to me. I'm going to go live my own life. And he spent it all. And it was all gone. He found himself living in the sewer of pig sloth. And at that point, at the lowest point, when things could not get any worse, he had turned his back on God. He said, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The Bible says that he turned and he went back to his house. And the father, the Bible says, the father arose, uh, he arose and came to, his fi- uh, uh, came to his father. But when he, the prodigal, was a great way off, his father saw him. That means he was waiting for him. You know what that, that tells me? God's always waiting. For what? For us to come home. For us to say, God, I've been away too long. I've been out there. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I, I, I can't find my way. All I remember is that, man, my hired servants of my daddy live better than I do. And I want to go home. And God says that the daddy waits for that moment. He looks and he waits. And when he was afar off, man, he ran to him. The Bible says that he grabbed him and he picked him up and he kissed him. He said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and get a new robe on him. I want you to slay a calf. I'm going to have a feast. Why? Because my son who was dead is alive and he came home. Glory to God. That's the God that we have. A daddy that always is waiting for us to come home. And I want you to know that and never forget it. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can always find forgiveness with God. Let me say a few things. First of all, God's word is always true. Don't let Satan tell you otherwise. Just as scripture reveals the hard life of one living in sin, the Bible also unveils the truth about God and the way back. Never let the devil lie to you about his word. His word, God's word is perfect. His way is perfect. So why try to live another way? Why should I try to live that way? Psalm 18 and verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? Who is a rock save our God? God's word is always true, which means secondly, God is always loving, boys. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God's glory may be gone from your life because of sin at a point, but his love is never gone. His honor in your life may be gone, and the blessing of grace may be gone, but his love is never gone. 
It's always there. Unconditional. I tell people about the unconditional love of God and they get saved. And I talk about eternal security. I say, listen, my son is my son. He was born into my family. He will always be my son. If he gets committed to life in prison, he's still my son. Our fellowship is hindered because of his decisions. But our relationship is never severed. And that's the eternal security of a believer. I may make stupid decisions that cause God's blessing to turn, but I will never, bad English, not be a child of the living God. He always loves me, and he'll always love you. Hosea 11, verse 4, I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love. I love this statement. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. If there's something more relieving, I don't know what it is. The fact of the matter is God says, look, I love you so much. I want to relieve your burdens like a yoke off of the back and you have all liberty now. Why? Because I love you. That's a powerful promise. Titus three and verse three, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. The fact is, love changes everything. And God wants you to remember that. Thirdly, God is always ready to forgive. Always. You, my friend, may, never, may not be ready to repent. But God is always ready to forgive. Somebody say amen. I may not be ready to say, you know, I kind of like living in this pig slop. I'm not ready to say, I want to go home. But that doesn't mean that God is not still on the porch watching for you. He's always ready to forgive. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. These are the truths about God that you need to not forget. And plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Now we know why you read verses like this in the Bible. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. And Trust me when I say you want God's face to shine on your life. You want that. Let me give you two more points and we're done. God's always prepared to guide you. Always prepared to guide you. But the lesson to learn is you've got to let him guide you. Don't be guided by man. Man is fallible. Let me say that again. Man is fallible. Amen. If that man is not guided by God, his wisdom is fallible. I would rather be guided by God. And his wisdom. Why? Because the Bible says his way is perfect. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord and he delighted in his way. Though he fall, he should not be utterly cast down. The Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Don't be the kind of Christians going out into this world that have to be bullied and horsed and manhandled into the will of God. That's what the Bible tells us. Let God guide you with his eye. Let him look at a place and you say, Lord, if that's where you want me to go, if that's what you want me to do, I'm already there. 
And yet there are many Christians living today that are pulling against those reins. You ever go on a horse ride and, and the horses are kind of programmed because they've gone down the, the, the trail so many times? You can basically just let go and it's like, let's go on a horseback ride. And you really are like, well, this is boring because the horse is just doing everything on his own. He knows when to stop. He knows when to go. You don't really do anything. If you try to stop him, oh, he just doesn't like it at all. He starts going like this and you're like, whoa, what's going on? No, don't do that. Just let him have the reins. Well, then why am I here with reins? You try to get a horse to do something that he doesn't want to do and you could be in a world of hurt. You see that struggle and God says, that's what it looks like when you have a bit in your mouth. So don't be like that. Don't, don't pull against me. Let me guide you. He's always ready. Let him guide your life down the paths of righteousness for his namesake, Psalm 23, 4. So you don't have to regret what you've decided or done when you go down that road. You have the rest of your life. You haven't repeated any cycles of unrighteousness. So why start today? Why start next year? Why not, why not say, look, it doesn't matter the people in my life, what matters, uh, I, and I don't mean that irreverently, they may not have made all the right choices. But I have a chance to make the right choices. So that 20 years from now, I'm not looking at my children going, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. And you could just say, you know what, I tried to do my best for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want the best for you. And, and there's not a parent sitting in this room that would not look at their kids and say, yes, that's what I want. I want you to do it better than I did it. I want you to do it right where I was wrong, but where I was right, I hope that you follow me. That's the heart. Let God guide you. Lastly, God is always inclined to bless righteousness. Just as the way of the transgressor is hard, the way of, of, of the righteous is blessed of God. Now, don't under, misunderstand God's word. The life of those who walk with God are not without difficulty. Remember, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The next verse, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That means that God led me there. Does everybody get that? It doesn't mean that life is not without difficulties. It just means when those difficulties come, his glory is going to be on your life and people will see it. And you'll have grace. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor wilt thou compass him as a shield. Psalm 106 and verse 3, Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Jesus said, Blessed are they who hunger and who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The Bible is replete. Live for God and have the blessing and the glory of God. The stark reality of these two truths is that Satan does an amazing job of hiding them both. So don't let the glory of God depart from your life. Don't let the bright light of righteousness leave your face. And if it does, just go home. Matthew Henry said, if God go, the glory goes. If God go, the glory goes and all good goes. Woe unto us if he depart. There's a reason 2 Chronicles 7.14 is in the Bible. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. This, by the way, is another promise. Then will I forgive their sin. I will hear their land. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. These truths, both of them, God does not want any one of us to remember. I'm sorry. Satan does not want any one of us to remember. 
And yet the word of God is the lamp into our feet and a light into our path so we don't forget them. Now, I don't know if the, if the glory of God is gone out of your life or not. I don't know. Or a portion of it. I don't know what part of your life God can bless and is blessing or not. But here's what I do know. He sure does love you. And all you have to do is look at a cross and be reminded of that love. And be reminded that no matter what part of your life is not being glorifying to God, that today can be. And God says, I want to make it right. I want you to make it right. I want to pour out the windows of heaven and give you a blessing that there's no room for you to contain it. And I want you to have what every child of God should have, the glory of God in their life. Let's pray this morning. Father, it took me a while to get it all out, but it's all out. For that, I'm grateful. I want to thank you, Holy Spirit of God, for giving us your word. And as we opened it today, Lord, these two truths are hidden from us, some of us on a daily basis. As your people, we need your face to shine on us. We need your glory so badly. God, the devil oftentimes distracts us, deceives us, gets us to live in manners that make portions of our life die because of sin. We're so sorry. And Lord, I don't know today who may need to repent. I don't know today who may have an Ichabod in their closet. I don't know. Lord, I know this. You're ready to forgive us. And if we're willing to humble ourselves before you, you are more than ready and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, do so today and more. Please minister to hearts. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to give you just a minute or two, especially Jake and Trent. And I, I just want to ask you boys to take what God has said from his word to heart. I, I, I want you to pray. If, if you have nothing between your soul and the Savior today, then I, I want to ask you to pray for these boys. But if you're a child of the living God today, you don't have God's face shining on you because you're living in sin. Then, man, let's get it right today. Let's just stop the train wreck before it happens and, and let God take over. It's not worth it. The, the, the Bible is written to teach us that. Would you take some time this morning and just humbly come before God? Ask Him, Lord, is my life pleasing to you? Can I just implore you? <laughs> come home. take a quick second or two and pray for Trent and Jake. Pray for their parents. Pray for this time of transition in their life. Pray that their hearts would be wide open to the Lord's leading in their life, whatever he wants them to do. Maybe you want to pray that for your own children.
Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace and mercy. I thank you for the prayers that were offered up this morning. And Lord, I want to pray a blessing on this church. Please help us, Lord. Help us to seek your face. Help nothing else to matter in this life, in this world, but your will for us. I want to pray also, Lord, for the families of Trent and Jake. I pray that you'd give them grace, wisdom, and mercy. I pray that you would bless their effort by faith to raise their boys for the glory of God. And then, Lord, I pray lastly for Trent and Jake. I pray that you'd help them on this new road. pray that you'd guide them with your eye, that they be not like mule or horse that has to be led by bit and bridle. I pray that their lives would be shining light testaments in a culture that is completely against everything that they believe and give them courage to stand for Jesus. And Lord, I pray for every believer in this place this morning and everyone listening, that you would encourage them where they are. Lord, I pray that we would make right decisions. Give us wisdom when we leave here. Give us your grace. We need your strength and power. I pray that it would all be to the glory and the magnification of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray for our nation today, especially those who have suffered loss. God, because their loved ones volunteered for our military and they were slain on a battlefield somewhere. God, even for those that came, survived battle and came back here and they were slain in some awful manner. I pray for comfort for their lives today. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that many have come or will come to Christ through their tragedy. That they would find the peace that passes all understanding from God himself and therewith comfort others with it. Lord, I pray that as a nation we would repent. As Christians, we would live like it. That you would be glorified in our country, not a political party being lifted up, but rather the name of Christ being lifted up. That our lives would mean something to heaven. And we know that that would bring a revival. So I pray for it. Help us, O oh Lord, to live for you. Cause your face to shine upon us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.